Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Austin Montgomery for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Rose Villa CEO Vassar Bird. Rose Villa is a nonprofit, single site, continuing care retirement community in Portland, Oregon. In our conversation today, we discuss Rose Villa's approach to environmental conservation, innovation in design and development along with new ways the community serves residents with a focus on sustainability and wellness. Development, growth, and sustainability don't always go hand in hand. But for Roseville, the emphasis on a zero-emission small home neighborhood within the community was central to a growing trend in senior living construction, minimizing impact, and following a higher standard to develop more sustainable, eco-conscious communities. Bird offers a roadmap for how Rose Villa started its sustainability journey and small steps other operators can take to pursue sustainability. Most of the things you're doing for energy efficiency also helps you with climate change problems, wildfires, energy disruption, all of those things, it all feeds together. But before we get to that interview, I would like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Submissions are currently open. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com for more information on how to enter. Now, here's my interview with Vassar Bird, CEO of Rose Villa. Vassar, thanks for being on today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So firstly, would you mind explaining some of the environmentally conscious things that Rose Villa is doing within the community and just how that journey started? Certainly. Uh, so Rose Villa is a nonprofit continuing care retirement community outside of Portland, Oregon. And we've been here literally for over almost 65 years. Mm-hmm. I have been here for the last 15 of those years. And when I arrived, the campus was ripe for redevelopment for us to stay financially viable. And so we've been on, for the last 10 years, a very serious redevelopment journey that has involved three different phases of massive construction on our site, re-envisioning and re-understanding how we are relevant to seniors in our area. And so one of the really key components for people in the Northwest is environmental awareness, environmental consciousness, stewardship of the earth. And so for us to really understand how the original residents of Rose Villa understood that. And they were always doing things that everyone's family does, uh, recycling and and all of those sorts of things. To take that to the next level, what did that mean? And so we talked to a lot of folks. We understood some great practices from our, our local partners. And so we have done so many things over the past years. So some of the things that we we've done. And the the goal is to be as light on the environment as we can possibly be and to think about it in the real long term, which frankly is something that seniors are very good at. They understand they have a legacy and that that is important. Every action we take is important. So at the end of our redevelopment, we can look back and say, we've done everything that's super simple, like removing lawn wherever we can in favor of drought tolerant local native plants. We've retrofitted all of our irrigation systems with more water-efficient nozzles and drip irrigation to conserve water. Last year, we planted 18 trees to increase the tree canopy. You're always conscious of mitigating, you know, sort of the heat island that you create. And we've ripped Mm -hmm. up concrete left and right in all of our uh, redevelopments and put more green space in. We've earned backyard habitat certification that's you plant native and pollinator plants in yards and common spaces. That's an Audubon program. That's truly amazing. 
And as part of that, we're taking out invasive plant species. And then, you know, how we operate our campus, we're removing gasoline powered things and replacing them with battery powered things. And even five years ago, the battery powered grounds maintenance equipment was terrible. And now it's really good. So you have to constantly be looking at what you can do. Simple things like paper usage on campus has gone down 20% in the last two years. Uh, one of the coolest programs we've had that was a joint effort between uh, residents and staff was a food composting program that we implemented before the municipalities around us did, which was really cool. We call it the Red Bucket Brigade. And we had a local farm that the pigs used to compost. I mean, it was really, really awesome. We grow and harvest our own food. We have a two-acre organic community garden. It doesn't take care of all of our food needs, but a lot of stuff. I guarantee if you come to Roseville in the summer, you will only have a Roseville-grown tomato. And then we also have an opt-in wind energy surcharge program that we have offered through PGE. A vast majority of our residents have uh, chosen to take advantage of. And then, uh, and additionally, we've installed EV and hybrid charging stations for both staff and resident vehicles. And we're getting ready to reassess that, figure out what the next generation of that looks like. So that is one of the things is that even when you do something sustainable, the technology changes and things get more efficient or more cost effective. And so you're constantly looking at what else you can do. And then, of course, uh, we built two neighborhoods of net zero homes. And so that's been kind of a big deal also. (laughs) So there's lots of things. We're always looking. I think that it's really interesting to hear you talk about how layered all of the different aspects are within uh, Rose Villa. So I, I also wanted to ask too, maybe how that vision progressed for you and how it just built over time, because it sounds like very nuanced. And I just wanted to know a little bit more about um, just how you approached uh, that vision approach or thinking about what's next, about all the smaller things you could do to kind of build off of what you've already built. Well, what you have to do is you have to listen to the people that live here. And so that is part of what we started with is, you know, the folks that have been here before, what do they do? What's important to them? And then you build a group of insanely passionate people, and that's both staff and residents. And they are sort of the advance guard for everything. They are vetting ideas. They're coming up with crazy thoughts. They're finding partners who can help us do things. Uh, We've looked at wind turbines on campus not possible at this time. Geothermal. There's all kinds of things that we've looked at. And those are all ideas from residents and staff. And so it's, it's important that you get this huge menu of what you can do. You look at it long term, and then you slot in what you can do when you can do it. And so I think that many people are, they feel overwhelmed by the idea that we have to like completely redo the campus or solar is the answer to everything. And it's not necessarily a big project. Small things add up tremendously. I mean, the paper recycling thing, that's just about as old school as you can get. And that's huge. It saves money. It saves resources. People are proud of it. Every day you get to do it. You know, I think it's really a big deal. So uh, for us, listening to the voice of the residents, making sure that we've empowered those folks to, you know, they're, I li- I'm in on those conversations. It's not, you know, delegated many levels down so that we never hear the ideas and then understanding it's multi, multi-year. And for us going forward, this folds into a bigger resiliency action plan that we're working on. That's a multi-year capital intensive. And it is like taking all these things we've done. And then the next level is how do we make our campus more resilient? Because most of the things you're doing for energy efficiency also helps you with climate change problems, wildfires, energy disruption, all of those things, it all feeds together. I also wanted to ask, I'm hearing you mention a lot about the residents and kind of having that resident-centric approach and really listening from the bottom up. 
about what they want. What were some of the reasons you chose to pursue zero energy standards uh, for those two newest communities at Rhodesville? Because I, I, I want to hear more about that and just how that came to be. Absolutely. So we built the first one, the Oaks, uh, opened in 2019. And then the second one, Trillium Townhomes, is just opening in the next uh, month or so. And we were, I was very nervous about the first uh, net zero energy neighborhood because it is more expensive to build. I do believe that the more of us that build it, the less expensive it's going to be. But initially, being out there in the front was a little more expensive. And I just wasn't sure that it would be a draw for people to pay more money. And so we took the leap. And what turned out to be the case is that neighborhood was the first one to sell out in our phase two offerings. We had four different neighborhoods in phase two. So I asked those residents, like, why did you do that? And they said, well, it's the only chance we have to really live our values because we can never afford to build an entire net zero energy home. But this is a way that we can actually make a difference and live the values that are important to us and make a difference. And so I think that is what we thought. We asked a lot of people, but when people actually wrote the check you know, to, and said, this is that important, that gave us the, the confidence to build another net zero energy uh, neighborhood. And I think that that is the case. And I think that will be more and more people who believe that that is one way they can make a difference on the planet. And I will say for us, listening to all of that and going through that process with a really, really good partner who knows everything about uh, net zero energy, that's Greenhammer, that educated us about where materials are sourced and how they are finished and all of those kinds of information, all that kind of information changed how we did our standard construction as well. So even the standard construction is more energy efficient and lighter on the planet than it would have been 10 years ago. So it all informs the other. So I think I think we listened to the residents, their commitment to the environment. We took a little leap of faith and then they did too by buying into, literally buying into that promise of making a difference in the future. Where does that mindset of environmentalism and sustainability come from in your mind? Well, I have always thought that seniors are the most radical and responsible group of people on the planet. And so I believe that that people who are really thinking of the future and understanding all of the benefits and the blessings they have received in their long lives, they are in a unique position to understand how important it is that we protect and preserve for the future. I want to be able to look my grandchildren in the eye and say, yeah, we did some things here that made a difference. And I think every person who lives here feels that way a hundred times. So I, the other part about, about net zero neighborhoods is they're not just energy efficient, they're healthier. And so there's an immediate benefit to the residents. The air is much, much cleaner and, and continuously filtered that we use sustainable products. There's no off-gassing. It's really tremendously important for the people that live there. And of course, it takes our reliance on the traditional power grid you know, it definitely lessens that. So all of those things really, really help sell it. And part of our resiliency action plan is figuring out how we can even leverage that even more because we are able to sell back our excess energy, which we're producing excess energy in our Oaks neighborhood already. So we can sell it back to the grid or we can store it with our own batteries, backup supplies. So trying to figure out what is the most reasonable thing to do next is really exciting. So everyone likes, it feels very proactive. We're really, you know, taking the future in our hands in a way rather than just receiving. And I heard you talk about this already about resident buy-in and really taking a leap of faith, but I want to drill down on that a little bit more. How do residents of the community view this pursuit of sustainability? And it sounds like they have bought in completely. You know, any group of 
300 people. It's a, it's a great bell curve. So I would say <laughs> that the middle of the bell curve absolutely agrees that we also have some folks that think we're not doing enough, that they're upset that we have any gasoline powered vehicles at all. And I understand that. I'd love to have a no car campus. And I think that is also coming in the future, but it's not here right now. So part of it is not getting too far ahead. You know, you want to go a little ahead of what the demand is so that you don't go out of business. And then on the other side of the bell curve, there's some folks who really don't care. But what we're doing, we're trying to do in such an economic way, such a such a financially careful way that they don't, it's not like their bills are going up 20% because we're energy efficient. There's really no impact to our operating expenses because of the measures that we're taking because we're planning ahead and we're trying to be thoughtful and it's not all at once. So I do think that the vast majority of people here, they very much support it. They're proud of it. It's something they can talk to their kids and their grandkids about and that it is cool <laughs> to the to the next generation and they have something to talk about them you know to them with definitely and now i want to shift a little bit to talk about this lens of sustainability but now shifting to discuss development and kind of how you square those two uh, items how do you square environmentalism with the pursuit of future growth and what are some of the factors for development that you must consider within that framework future growth is tricky especially in our environment right now and the sort of supply constraints that we are facing and the labor constraints, obviously inflation is on the way. So no matter what you do, it's going to be tough. And so what I would say in terms of dialing in environmentally sustainable practices and long, this is really long-term planning. It's the longest term planning you can make. You know, you're trying to save the planet and your company. And so I feel that all of those things will pay off in, in incredible ways in the future. I think that you have to be smart about using your partners and understanding what your alternatives are. So we do not know everything. We need to to be friends with the experts in all the different areas. And we're doing a good job of that so that they bring alternatives to us, different ways to do things, multiple paths to get to the success that we want. And the other thing that I would say is that I think that people can tend to focus too narrowly on the return on investment in some of these efforts that certainly you have to have some sort of return on your capital, but part of the return on your investment is the health of your residents and your staff. And I would say there's it's hard to quantify that, but it's certainly as important as any ROI that you would ever see on a spreadsheet. And I, I think you can't lose track of that, that what you're investing in is the lifestyle and the health of everyone who's part of Rose Villa. And you just referenced that. Bottom lines are getting tighter as inflation, rising costs, and higher labor and food costs uh, prices take hold. Uh, how do you explain the benefits of pursuing environmentally sound development while managing costs? Yeah. I think part of it is that when you're being environmentally conscious, you're being proactive. You are doing something positive. And that is a good feeling. And I think that that's very helpful for people to get their arms around that rather than just say, oh, what are we going to do? The prices are going up. And so we have to be smart operators. There's no question. We, we are doing more with less. We're trying to think through uh, how do we make our staff as flexible as possible so multiple people can do multiple things. We are looking at how we leverage resident manpower and how they can help do some of the things on campus. Some, some folks want to do that. It is challenging because resident health status changes more rapidly than people think. Uh, so you have to always be you know, thinking resilient, you know, backup planning on that. We can't have everything. So that is the other part about making sure that you're communicating with your residents and your staff because you want to know what's most important. And so maybe 
the thing that was important four years ago and costs a lot now isn't that important when we look at the big picture. So making sure everybody knows everything about what our options are is, I think, the surest way to be to be positive that we're hitting the mark and not spending money that we on things that we don't really. Is it hard to not get out in front of yourself? Because I'm hearing a pretty methodical approach, it sounds like, just in terms of all aspects of, of how you view sustainability, but also development and what what could come next. So is that something that you really have to be conscious of as you're as you're thinking about all these things? Yes, absolutely. So you need to, I would encourage anyone to have a standing group that really evaluates all those things. So certainly it's not just me, my God, <laughs> that would be a disaster. It needs to be the person that can make the decisions and write the check, but it needs to be a good selection of folks who understand your campus needs. We've done uh, survey of all our buildings, for instance, not very sexy, but we have to survey all their 60 buildings on this campus of different ages going back to 1960. So they have different needs. So then we can figure out what is the priority? What do we need to do, do when? That's extremely methodical, time consuming, long term horizon. But that, I have people here who do that kind of thing. So it's basically an inventory of our energy needs. The reason why it's important to have a group, and I would include residents in that group as well. We have a couple of really, really smart and experienced residents who know lots about this stuff, but lots of residents will read about something, maybe hear about it in a podcast, and call me up right away and say, oh, we got to do this right now. And so that is one of those things where you could say, yes, please, thank you to give me all the information you got, and we'll put it in the mix, and then we will come back with um, the, how the menu is going to lay out for us, and we review it on a regular basis because... As I said before, technology changes constantly and the price of things changes. And I wish it always went down, but sometimes it goes up. So you have to pay attention. Definitely. And now I just want to shift to getting your perspective that you would maybe share with other providers, other operators, other companies who might be considering pursuing sustainability a bit further within their own community. What steps would you recommend for other communities if they want to pursue environmentally friendly components within their facility? Just as, as a starting off point. Right. I would say start small. Don't feel like this is big because it's so overwhelming, especially now. Senior living providers are taxed. They are pooped. We're exhausted from the last two years. And a new, a new program, you know, that's just too much. So, so start small uh, and build from the small. And I would start with a cohort, that a, a group that includes both staff and residents. And those are the people that are super excited about it. And they'll go out and get the information you need to make a decision about how you start adding more things in to your basic, I mean, everyone recycles. How could you step that up a little bit? Um, is there a local county or municipal program that will support or recognize your efforts? Because that's also getting the pat on the back, getting the gold certification. It doesn't change what we're doing, but it feels good. And everyone can say that's a marker like, oh, we've really been successful here. So I would encourage you to find those, those markers and awards and recognition and also then that provides you with a, a clear plan forward. What's the next thing you need to do? So Audubon is another place to look at because of that backyard certification. That's something that every single resident can be part of. They can change their own yards right away. So I think starting small is a key. And I think that uh, listening to the residents and staff that really care about it and then plugging it into a long-term plan is the way to really go forward. And now I just want to shift to talking about the small home concept. I know we've talked about this at length in the past, and it's something that I think is is growing pretty rapidly within the sector, uh, as as especially as a type of development that really is taking hold. Especially as you're seeing massive construction costs for these larger larger projects and things like that. So I think 
communities are starting to maybe reevaluate what a community actually looks like. So in your mind, how has small home living helped you achieve at Rose Villa some environmentally friendly goals? Well, we would not have been able to do zero energy project if we had said we had to start with 60 homes. <laughs> it would have just been too much, too scary. And so that's one, one thing is that you have these neighborhoods of smaller, of smaller numbers of people and you can experiment. I mean, that's the thing. You can do anything with a neighborhood of 12 or six homes and check it out and see if the market wants it, see if your design build is, it goes forward the way you think. If you hit the budget you expect, it's not, you have to take a smart risk, but a small risk is a good risk. And so we've proved out those neighborhoods and we can build more of those going forward because we know it works and we were able to take the chance on that. And the other component of that really is that you're asking residents to partner with you in a very specific way. A zero energy home isn't just buying a new appliance. It's a change in your lifestyle. So you can't live in that home and still plug in the Christmas tree and run the hair dryer and all the other stuff that you might do and expect it to be zero energy. You have to change how you use it. So you're not buying your way out of it. You're also changing how you think about how you use your house. So I think that folds into small house living because the more that people understand they don't need 3,000 square feet, which most of that's wasted space, you use, no matter how big your house is, you use about 800 to 1,000 square feet of your house, where you sleep, where you cook, that's it. And so that's another part of small home living is, why are you spending the money and the resources to build the extra 1,200 square feet? So I think that's part of what we, what we like. And for us, the other component of small home living is that is it's, we're building homes that face each other across a green space. And so that it builds the social connection. So I, it's not energy efficient, but it's socially enriching for sure. And that's a key component of building the community, which is what gives you the, the motor, the power to do all these innovative things. And just as a, as a sidebar to that, you want to discuss just how the small home concept really benefited the community within the last two years in the oh. pandemic. I know you guys you guys adapted so well to being able yeah. to still stay connected. So I'd love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear just kind of some of the adaptations you made to make that happen before we get away from that. Yeah. It's a big deal, I think. And I, I understand there are a lot of locations where you cannot build out. And I believe there are going to be adaptations to create some of the feel of small home living in a different kind of environment. But where you have the opportunity to invite the outdoors inside, it really makes a big difference. And for us during COVID, it was phenomenally successful because we were able to create community over outdoor spaces constantly. So we never quote unquote, locked people in. That was just not something that we would even think of doing. Our response to COVID was massive education and communication. We had live streams every week. We, we shared everything that we knew live with everyone. And we had, again, a resident staff group that made decisions about how we would implement the different CDC stuff on campus. But one of the things that we were able to do was we had, for instance, we have happy hour is now through Rover the Roving Bar Cart which is a little tricked out golf cart. Our idea was like, it's like an ice cream truck, but with alcohol. And so you can hear it coming. There's like rhythm and blues blaring and the, there's an, a cocktail of the day with an appetizer. It's manned. So there's a staff person driving it. And so you'll, you know what the route is. And the neighbors came out, they got their cocktails. They talked to each other across the green space. 
And so no one ever felt that they were locked away or isolated. They still had friends. They still connected. And then, of course, you know, you adapt with the Zoom stuff. But actually seeing people live, that was a big deal. We did some garden, uh, front yard garden parades as well, where there was a parade route and you could check how, what people are doing gardening wise. And again, like it's spaced but you're, you're with people outside. So we used our outside space to great effect during COVID. And people, I mean, we also were very healthy. We were, we were the first community in the Northwest to get vaccines. Our staff was 100% vaccinated. Everyone's 100% vaccinated. So that also gave you, you know, that feeling of comfort. But even before the vaccine, we were able to do these things because we have the space and we used that outdoor space. I appreciate that look back. That uh, it was always so interesting to me when we first talked about all those programs that you guys had shifted to. So really appreciate you taking the time for that. Now I just want to shift back to looking ahead. Why, in your mind, why is the small home living concept something that is taking off within the space? I think that the reality of the fact that the future uh, group of seniors that we see coming down the pike are not as wealthy as their parents were, number one. So they can't afford the same kind of luxury, nor do they want the luxury environment that some folks have asked for in the past. So I think a small home living is more affordable for folks to to live in. And I think that it resonates tremendously with our focus on climate change and environmental responsibility, because you're using fewer materials, you're able to use better materials because you're not building a 5,000 square foot house. I think that what, what was highlighted during COVID is that social isolation literally kills people. And so people who died that didn't have COVID, was, they, they died because they weren't connected to other humans. And small house living is more connected to each other. It's, it's designed to, to enforce and to create human connection. And I think that is as important as anything else you can offer in a community. It's really a big deal. So all of those things come together, I think, into a desire for small home living. I feel that we're going to see more and more design work around how to create better, better environments, cheaper environments. How do we stay connected regardless of what your physical situation looks like? And that that's, has to be intentional. You can't just put a bunch of people in units in a 16 floor building and hope it turns into a community. That's just not, that's just not possible. And where do you see the future of environmental uh, sustainability within development and senior living going in your, in your opinion? I think we've already seen it in the Northwest. I think that we're going to have more and more senior living providers who design to passive house standards, that they're using, they're using the energy efficiency standards that make sense for their development. That is a market draw for seniors because they care about that. And so that is a you know, self-reinforcing cycle. And I really do think that the, the emphasis on that will change. I do know, you know, as recently as maybe five or six years ago, I've spoken at national conferences and people with communities in the middle of the country came up to me and said, is that really a thing, that whole environmental deal? Do people really care? And they really do. And I think they're going to start caring more more and more geographic locations will really start caring. You've got disasters happening all over the country. And I think that you might message it differently. Maybe in Texas, you could say, you know, we don't want to be reliant on the PGE or the power company. We want to be able to get our own power. That's environmentally sustainable, but you don't have to use that language. So it, it makes sense in more than just a feel-good way. It makes real sense to design that way. What factors are you paying attention to within the industry right now towards small home development? Are there things that you're really interested by or things that you think 
could take hold uh, that aren't necessarily part of the space right now? Just within that small home sector, I'd love to hear what you think about that. The biggest deal is land prices for us right now. I mean, it's impossible. It's land intensive. I mean, all senior living communities are land intensive, but in particular, it's land intensive. So that's probably the single most important thing for us to watch. And I would say the other thing that I am, I kind of feel like I'm in this dreamland here, but I keep thinking through, is there any way to reuse existing spaces? So there's a lot of abandoned commercial space. There's a lot of abandoned nursing homes. There are a lot of abandoned things that have served their purpose. Is there any way to repurpose that into a small home environment and save the money on building from scratch? And that, it's, that is a difficult, you know, that requires partnership with local municipalities and a whole bunch of people who have to believe that that is a, a good for the community. And I, I think that's coming. We've run across a lot more you know, the whole accessory dwelling unit thing here in the Northwest, the city of Portland has been phenomenal in wiping away any barriers to increasing density. And those are all small homes. That's even if it's not senior oriented. So lots of people now see the benefit of that. Having your mom live in the backyard, um, having people closer together. I think that that's all part of a bigger wave that we're going to benefit from in senior living. And now I just want to get you to look into your crystal ball for a minute. How might the future of senior living development look to you, say, two to five years from now? Uh, What priorities do you want to see communities taking as they're considering new development or infill development? Well, I think that there will be increasing emphasis on building something that's unique and speaks to the people of that particular area. And that's something that Roseville has done a lot of. uh, We've talked to some of our colleagues about helping them figure out their story, what's important to the people in their area and how do they build something that speaks directly to them, not a corporate idea of senior living. And I think that goes hand in hand with building smarter, more sustainable homes that are home. They're not home-like, they are home. And people walk in and feel instantly like this is really their place. I think that the use of technology in building is going to facilitate that change. It will make things more efficient and more cost effective. And I think will help us use materials more wisely. I think all of those things will come together to to create more interesting and unique environments for seniors to live in because they will not live in the place that their grandparents lived. They will not. So we have to meet that demand. And it's people worry that that means it's all a boutique or it's more expensive. That is, that is not the same thing. That is not the same thing. So it's up to us to be creative in how we interpret that. That does it for today's episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. Submissions are currently open. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com for more information on how to enter. I'm Austin Montgomery for Senior Housing News. Thank you for listening. 